This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. That lucky star I talk about is I'm pretty sure we've used that song and used it more than once on this program in the past, but I do know that we've never started the show with it, and um, it's a great pleasure to open with Ethel Merman's version of Everything's Coming Up Roses. And it turns out that's an appropriate choice for today's program because that particular tune worked its way into two separate theatrical productions I was a witness to this past weekend. And of course, although we note this program is based generally upon the subjects of science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please, that latter gives us quite a bit of wiggle room to enter sometimes the world of the arts and theater and literature, etc. And although we risk being over our heads in that particular uh, realm, <laughs> we're, we're going to take a plunge into it rather deeply today and perhaps make the entire program, a look at what we can say about, well, these, these two plays, which were, we would note, at the Pasadena Playhouse, God Looked Away, a play about Tennessee Williams and starring on stage the legendary Al Pacino. Yours truly traveled down to Southern California to witness that, uh, that event on Saturday of last weekend. And the following day, I went over to Burbank, to the Falcon Theater there to take in For Piano and Harpo, which tells the story of Oscar Levant and weaves in his friendship with Harpo Marx. That production was written by Dan Castellaneta, who is also the lead, playing the role of Oscar Levant. He's better known to you, perhaps, as the voice of Homer Simpson. On Facebook, uh, I'm pals with... Radio Parallax's good friend, Philip Proctor. Mr. Proctor, for the past 50 years, has been a member of the Firesign Theater. I'm not, I'm not sure I can actually say that, since, unfortunately, two of the members have now passed on, Phil Austin and Peter Bergman. But David Osman is still with us, and Phil Proctor very much is still with us, and starring on the stage. When he publicized some weeks back that this play would be running in February into March, I was quite taken in. Because as a boy, I remember the appearances of the legendary Oscar Levant on the Jack Parr program. Some years back, I purchased one of his. I didn't realize he'd written three books. I'm, I'm actually delighted to know that he'd written three books, because now I can read the other two. But long ago, I purchased and read a copy of The Memoirs of an Amnesiac, a bestseller back in 1965, and highly recommended, dear listener. Likewise, Harpo Marx has been somebody that uh, we find very interesting. His book, Harpo Speaks, written in the late 50s, and I guess it came out in paperback, the version I have in the 60s, is also quite a good read. So it was my guess that with the raw material of Oscar Levant and Harpo Marx, a play really couldn't go wrong. So it is, I think I want to talk at length today about that play, and also, and God looked away and see if we can't weave in some of the uh, 
tales of the protagonists upon which these theatrical productions were built around. There's a lot you can say about those three guys. Now, we do hate to completely abandon current events and, and don't necessarily want to go completely freeform today, abandoning our usual boilerplate at the top of the hour, but um, I think I'm going to. But if we do run out of gas here early, we will talk about some current events uh, at the end of today's program and, and may weave a few items in to the narrative. In fact, I'm going to do that in just a minute here. If we're going to talk about the likes of Oscar Levant and Tennessee Williams today, then the age-old um, subject is going to come up of the connection between people of great talent and, um, well, craziness. Oddly enough, as I was contemplating this matter and listening to the radio in the car, Terry Gross's program came on, and the guest was talking about this very topic. Last, uh, last Tuesday, that was. Her guest was addressing the issue of uh, creativity and not necessarily madness, but perhaps mania. It's been noted since ancient times that people who are creative sometimes are in a manic state. We know today that people who are in a manic state sometimes cycle into being a depressed state. And without, uh, without pretending to have the exact psychiatric diagnosis for either Oscar Levant or Tennessee Williams, I would say that both men certainly displayed characteristics of both with an overlay of substance abuse. And in the course of Mr. Levant, undoubtedly some degree of obsessive-compulsive disorder. So I think what we should do is talk about each play first and then, and then expound a bit upon the personalities that, uh, that they're based upon. Actually, hold that thought. We like to start each program with a quote and a quip and a joke, etc. And um, since we have Oscar Levant at our disposal, a man who certainly can supply all of those and numerous great anecdotes, let's begin the show with a quote from Oscar. Let's start with two of them, actually. From the memoirs of an amnesiac, we have this pair. I keep saying the wrong things at home, to friends, and on television. When Frank Sinatra Jr. was kidnapped, I said on the Jack Parr show, it must have been done by music critics. But doing that one better is this one. Anybody who engages Roy Cohn for his attorney can't be all good. Now we have to pause right there to just take a little slight jump into current events. As um, you probably noticed, real estate mogul slash weasel Donald J. Trump is currently serving out a term as the President of the United States. And as I hope you are aware, dear listener, Donald Trump's path to power did include a little boost from the aforementioned Roy Cohn. And we think that this many decades later, Mr. Trump has proven... Oscar Levant prescient with his remark that anyone who has Roy Cohn for an attorney can't be all good. To quote from a Washington Post article about Donald Trump, Trump brings to Washington a leadership style built on his father's success in the rough and tumble world of developing apartment buildings in New York's outer boroughs and refined under the tutelage of Roy Cohn, the infamous Manhattan lawyer who taught young Donald that all publicity is good publicity, and that victory comes only to those who fight back a hundred times harder than any hit they might absorb. Roy Cohen is certainly a worthy topic for a future discussion in this program, but let us just note today, in a segue to the segue, that Roy Cohen was the hitman for Senator Joe McCarthy when McCarthy was at the height of his abuse of power in the early 50s. It turned out that Cohen inadvertently had a role to play in the downfall of McCarthy 
when, in the act of pushing their luck to the limit, Cohen and McCarthy threatened to take on the United States Army on the premise that it apparently was riddled with communists. When Congress held hearings into that and televised them uh, in mid-June of 1954, that was the beginning of the end for Joe McCarthy, who was seen to be a bullying jackass on national television. Now, Mr. Cohen has long since departed the scene, so uh, Donald Trump's connection to him apparently isn't going to do him any harm at this point. Unless, of course, someone decides to look into it, and frankly, somebody should. But anyway, back to the play for Piano and Harpo. We would refer at this point to a review of the play published by Tara Fass, who's described as a licensed psychotherapist in Los Angeles. Said Tara Fass, for Piano and Harpo is a play based on the friendship between wickedly funny virtuoso pianist, actor, radio and television personality Oscar Levant, and the 18-year-older mute clown and harpist Harpo Marx. Writer and director Dan Castellaneta has the two meet upon Levant's discharge from a psychiatric hospital after he fainted while attempting to strangle his wife. Instead of being prosecuted for domestic violence, Levant was admitted for exhaustion stemming from constant medication to keep up with a grueling tour schedule, introducing classical music to a broader audience, as well as the songbook of his late mentor, George Gershwin. The uh, action of the play moves freely between three time periods, the Jack Parr show in 1962, the Mount Sinai psych ward earlier in 1956, and earlier still, at Harpo Marx's rented Hollywood mansion in 1935. I should explain that Ethel Merman ties this all together because the Jack Parr show used Everything's Coming Up Roses as its theme. As we've noted on this program in the past, we are huge fans of the late, great Jack Parr, and tried to consciously imitate him. Unlike today's late-night television programs, the likes of Jimmy Kimmel, etc., where the, the guest generally is some actress, you know, promoting some movie that's just hitting theaters, Jack Parr took a much different approach back in the 60s when things were more experimental. He would bring on guests that made him laugh and he thought could entertain America. And near the top of that list where I saw him as a young boy, was Oscar Levant. He had in his youth been a musical prodigy and a piano virtuoso. He would later befriend George Gershwin and collaborate with him, and after the passing of Mr. Gershwin, as we mentioned a moment ago, did his best to bring his songbook to the American public. Going back to the review of the play, our psychotherapist noted that we are never told of Levant's diagnosis, although one might surmise it was perhaps bipolar with obsessive compulsive features related to hypochondriasis. Oh yes, he was a hypochondriac of the highest order. And given the fact that he'd had several admissions to um, psychiatric hospitals where they did such terrible things as electroconvulsive therapy on him, Levant just took that and his, his addiction to pills, including Demerol, uh, in stride and would make fun of it on national television. Once asked by Jack Parr what he did for exercise, Oscar answered, I stumble and fall into a coma. Now, later on in her review, our psychotherapist seems to imply that Oscar Levant uh, may have had some man crushes, perhaps, upon George Gershwin and perhaps Harpo, but um, this correspondent, frankly, has his doubts. Maybe. 
But if you take the time to read the memoirs of an amnesiac, you will find ample evidence of Oscar's pursuit of the opposite sex in a rather lusty fashion. And no, I admit I'm not qualified to make any evaluations of his perhaps bisexuality. Describing some of his adventures all over New York as he was a young virtuoso performer, Oscar had this to say, The Silver Slipper was also a favorite nightclub. All the hoods hung out there. Arlene Judge was one of the cuter Silver Slipper girls. Once she called me Baby. Mr. Baby to you, I insisted. Describing his days in vaudeville, Oscar said, There were a lot of great acts at the Rialto. Ray Bolger was in a double with another fellow. Ray was a kid then, and so was I. Ray Bolger, by the way, is the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. Remember the Rialto I asked him recently? He said, you were not only in the orchestra, you were the orchestra. Said Levant, I could play show music better than anybody. He noted that another member of the act was George Raft, who did a Charleston to Sweet Georgia Brown. Levant said, I would play a short version of Rhapsody in Blue, and George, who was a great gambler, would bet with a friend on my playing of one passage in Rhapsody. It consisted of eight bars in which the left hand makes jolting leaps to the bass if you hit the right notes. The bet was on whether I'd connect with those bass notes. The negative side rarely won. And we should note that if you're interested in the piano playing of Oscar Levant, and you should be, dear listener, take the time to go over to YouTube and see what some of the performances that are recorded there. He notes that when he first met George Gershwin, Gershwin asked him to play Rhapsody in Blue, and he told him that his, Gershwin's version, was better. Levant admitted that he may have been right, but if you listen to his version on YouTube, I think you'll agree that he was awfully, awfully good. Another passage describing the early days uh, in New York when he was one of the toasts of the town. Oscar Levant said that he sat down with Max Gordon, the theatrical producer, and asked him, how much did you lose in your last success? <laughs> said Levant, Gordon was asked once what he thought of nepotism in Hollywood. What's that, said Max. When relatives give jobs to relatives, he was told. Asked Max in surprise, you mean they have a word for that? Levant added, I was an irritant to everybody. I was a catalyst when no one had asked for one. Howard Dietz was a brilliant pool player, a virtuoso ping pong player, and a brilliant lyric writer. After lunch one day, I was walking at Broadway with Howard, and he asked, where are you going to be tomorrow at 1 o'clock? When I told him, he replied, well, that's where I won't be. But uh, sounding a much less neurotic note, and, and an e but an equally entertaining note, is, is Harpo Marx, and I would like to pick up his riotous autobiography and see if I can't uh, snag a few worthy quotes out of it. Now, it should be noted that uh, when Harpo Marx was appearing with his brothers on uh, the stage in New York, he got some good reviews and wound up meeting some of the reviewers and somehow wheedled his way into the famous round table at the Algonquin, which are, consisted of some of America's greatest literary wits. It seems an odd match for Harpo, <laughs> who uh, is famous for never speaking. It might be noted, too, that one of the luminaries at the Algonquin was George S. Kaufman. The Marx Brothers were fortunate in that he, he wrote a lot of their early plays, which became movies. Harpo noted that at one point, Charlie Chaplin evidently strayed into the, uh, the Algonquin and joined the, uh, the club. <laughs> noted Harpo, crazy bits and fragments of roundtable talk came back to me still over the years. Harpo quotes Kaufman as once asking, Do you want to hear me give a sentence using the word punctilious? To which Alexander Wolcott said, give me a sentence using the word punctilious. Said Kaufman, I know a man who has two daughters. 
Lizzie and Tilly. Lizzie's all right, but you have no idea how punctilious. And thank you for the rim shot, Mr. McMillan. You know, for his part, there's also, for his part, Oscar Levant had some good things to say about uh, George S. Kaufman. Noting that at one point they were struggling to put on a production that involved the music of Irving Berlin, relying upon the book by George S. Kaufman. Apparently a woman saw the initial production and came up to Kaufman afterwards and mistook him for Irving Berlin. Said, Mr. Berlin, your music is great, but something's got to be done about the production. To which apparently Kaufman nodded sadly and said, yes, the problem is the book was written by George S. Kaufman. By the way, Harpo Marx confirmed in his autobiography that um, he once got a call from Oscar Levant saying he wanted to come over for coffee. <laughs> Grouches said, well, all right. He had him come over, noted that once Oscar was there, he had a cup of coffee and then decided to stay a little while longer, and he stayed for about one year and one month. Said Harpo, I was too slow on the trigger and too soft of heart. I knew more about Oscar than he knew I knew. I had been briefed about him by the Gershwins and by the Kaufmans, too. Oscar idolized George Gershwin for a year he'd been tagging along as a kid brother. Ira and George had lived in a double penthouse in Riverside Drive. Oscar, without being invited, decided he should board with them. For ten months, he didn't miss a meal. Then one night that fall, he jumped from the table in the middle of dinner and said, Hate to eat and run, but you'll have to excuse me. With that, he bolted out the penthouse, and the Gershwins didn't see him or hear from him again until sometime in the middle of winter. Not long afterwards, the George Coffins acquired him. Oscar turned up at their Bucks County Palace, uninvited, of course, for a weekend. Late on Saturday night, he suddenly turned on Coffin and sneered that he'd be insulted enough. He was leaving. He headed for the door. Then he made an about face and came back into the room, taking off his coat. I'm not going after all, he said. George asked him why not. Oscar said, I just remembered I have no place to go. He stayed for the rest of the week. Said Harper, what can I say about Oscar Levant that hasn't already been said, mainly by Oscar himself? For one year and one month, he declared my house his house. For one year and one month, he ate my food, played my piano, ran up my phone bills, burned cigarette holes in my landlady's furniture, monopolized my record player and coffee pot, gave his guests the run of the joint, insulted my guests, and never stopped complaining. He was an insomniac, he was an egomaniac, he was a leech and a lunatic. But I love the guy. I found Oscar to be one of the most rewarding men I'd ever known. I lost a house, but gained a friend. My higher education, after a lapse of five years, was resumed. I took up learning things from Levant, where I'd left off with Alexander Woolcott. The amount of knowledge Oscar carried in his head was fantastic. I never came up with a question he couldn't answer. I never saw him stymied by any subject anybody ever brought up in his presence. I'd never been exposed to such a mind as Oscar's, not even at the Algonquin Round Table. He had wit and talent to burn. Sometimes I think he literally did. When he fell into his periodic silences brooding over his coffee and chain-smoking cigarettes, he must have been burning off excess talent, along with all the witticisms he'd never had time to make. I think I'll quote from Harpo's book. He said, Oscar once called up his ex-wife Barbara at her home on Long Island. Barbara had been remarried for some time. Her husband was Arthur Lowe of the famous movie theater family. When she recognized Oscar's voice, she was furious. She asked him why he'd woken up in the middle of the night. It was 4 a.m. in New York. I just wanted to ask you something, said Oscar. Well, said Barbara, what's playing at Lowe's 86th Street tomorrow, said Oscar. Naturally, she hung up on him. Oscar turned to me and said, I have a feeling she still loathes me, Harpo. Nothing definite, but a very strong feeling. Let's talk a little bit about uh, God Looked Away, which I think I meant to do 15 minutes ago. Oh, well. But um, at any rate, it was at the Pasadena Playhouse, which is a wonderful venue in Pasadena. 
We reported last year, I believe it was, and going down there to see a one-man show by Frank Ferrante dedicated to Groucho Marx, Harpo's brother, of course. And uh, I believe, as we reported at that time, Mr. Ferrante did a superb job of capturing the wit and wisdom of Groucho. It turned out I did not know this, but they mentioned at the onset of the program that uh, the Pasadena Playhouse is the second oldest uh, playhouse in America. It celebrated its 100th birthday a couple of years back. And naturally, over the years, it's been a, a showcase for all kinds of talent, um, both of the writing type and of the performing type. The Playhouse program noted in the beginning of it that God Looked Away is a play about Tennessee Williams, one of our greatest American playwrights. It brings his memory and the recognition of his genius back home to the Playhouse, where he once roamed as an emerging young playwright. During the 1940s, the Playhouse had a smaller theater called The Play Box, where experimental and new works were produced. Two new plays by Tennessee were mounted at The Play Box, launching a decades-old embrace of his work that included many plays in the Williams canon produced on the main stage. Now, I must reiterate at this juncture, as I did at the top of the program, that although I'm a huge fan of both Harpo Marx and Oscar Levant, I, I can't say the same about Tennessee Williams. I note that Wikipedia says that along with Eugene O'Neill and Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams is considered one of the three foremost playwrights in 20th century American drama. They note that after years of obscurity, he suddenly became famous with The Glass Menagerie in 1944, which closely reflected his own unhappy family background. This heralded a stream of successes, including A Streetcar Named Desire, 1947, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, 1955, and Sweet Bird of Youth, 1959. They note on Wikipedia that his later work attempted a new style that did not appeal to audiences and alcohol and drug dependence further inhibited his creative output. And that pretty much was what you saw on stage in God Looked Away, the, the latter part of Tennessee Williams' career where he was attempting a new style that was not going over. And I would note that yours truly has attempted to, uh, to watch versions of productions of The Glass Menagerie, also, the movie version of A Streetcar Named Desire and the movie version of A Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and really couldn't last more than about 10 minutes in any of them. I found the characters to be really screwy and the dialogue to be screwier yet. <laughs> but I freely add that this may reflect my own personal deficiencies. Probably the only connection Radio Parallax can lay claim to and as regards Tennessee Williams is the fact that we did have a wonderful interview many years ago with the great actor Eli Wallach. Eli Wallach did appear on stage in one of Tennessee Williams' celebrated successes, The Rose Tattoo. Now, a curious link between Tennessee Williams and Oscar Levant, besides Ethel Merman. Oh, and I guess I should clarify, the reason it links both plays is that at one moment in God Looked Away, Al Pacino, as Tennessee Williams demands that uh, one of his associates put on the music that he likes. He goes over to the record player and out comes Ethel Merman. That was right before intermission, in fact, and when they came back at the start of the second act, uh, after having gone to witness the premiere of the play, it again was accompanied to Everything's Coming Up Roses. But of course, it turned out that everything was not coming up roses because the critics hated the play. The time was 1981, reportedly the date of Tennessee Williams's 70th birthday. In fact, at one point, uh, Williams is shown getting injected with Demerol. 
another link to Oscar Levin, who also had a weakness for that particular opiate. One of the characters, in fact, remarks to Tennessee Williams that this is just synthetic heroin. Now, it's curious that when I looked this up on Wikipedia, it noted that Williams's last play, which was A House Not Meant to Stand, the one that the, uh, the production centers around, uh, was produced in Chicago in 1982, and Wikipedia said, despite largely positive reviews, ran for only 40 performances. Well, God Looked Away paints a different picture in that the critics hated it, the audiences hated it, and uh, the producers then hastily backed away from taking it to Broadway. To be honest, what really drew me to Pasadena was seeing Al Pacino on the stage. I had one of the same thoughts as my office manager, who, when I reported having seen this play, said, how is Pacino's southern accent? My answer to that was, acceptable. Now, I have to confess, I did not know about Al Pacino's extensive uh, background on the stage. But the, but the Playhouse program notes state that between 63 and 69, um, he worked on William Saroyan's Hello Out There for his off-Broadway debut. He then moved on to Why is a Crooked Letter, for which he won an off-Broadway Obie, and The Indian Wants the Bronx, which earned him another Obie for Best Actor. He then moved on to Broadway and did Does a Tiger Wear a Necktie and earned his first Tony Award. He received a second Tony Award in 1970 for The Basic Training of Pavo Hummel. Al Pacino moved to the big screen in the 1971 drama Panic in Needle Park and, of course, rather legendarily, was cast against the wishes of the studio, as Michael Corleone in The Godfather. He got an Academy Award nomination for that, and I believe won the next year for The Godfather 2 sequel. I have more to say about this, but this would be a good time to, I think, end it for now and maybe return to the subject a little bit later. In summary, I would say that both plays, For Piano and Harpo and God Looked Away, would earn a solid B+. And if you happen to be listening in the greater Los Angeles area or want to take a trip down, you might want to consider, dear listener, um, attending either or both. Anyway, I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax, and I think for our outro music, we'll go out the way we came in. Only in this case, I think we'll use Patti Lapone instead of Ethel Merman. Oh. oh, and as one final addendum to this segment, I'd like to remind our listeners that when we were getting some nice ink a few years back, a local reporter had come by to Talk about Radio Parallax. When asked about background information on me, Mr. McMillan volunteered that in my spare time, I was an Ethel Merman impersonator. And this very much piqued the interest of the reporter and, and was saddened when Mr. McMillan had to confess that he made that up. <laughs>